black holes, time travel, the multiverse. These are all real or hypothetical topics you might reasonably expect me to discuss with today's guest, astrophysicist Jeff Swearing, PhD. And we do. But how about God? From a scientific perspective, there's a widely held belief that religion and science are somehow incompatible. And British biologist Richard Dawkins is among those from the scientific world who have championed the cause of promoting atheism on a scientific basis. But Jeff Swearing and his colleagues at Reasons to Believe think that science not only fails to disprove the existence of God, but in fact science proves that God does exist. The apparent incompatibility of science and religion originated fairly recently in the 19th century. Jeff traces its origin to the so-called conflict thesis by John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White, as he explains. The idea that they put forth is that science and religion are in conflict with one another. And so as science advances, religion's going to diminish into the past. But it's this idea that they're antagonistic towards one another. What's interesting is that in the intervening years since they put that forth, people have looked and said, is that the case or not? And people who study the history of science, what they will show is that the scholarship shows is that that is not a valid way of looking at things. There have been periods of conflict or issues of conflict more than periods of conflict. But the vast majority of time, what goes on is that science and religion, I'm using Christianity specifically here for religion, have coexisted and, and operated with a much more sophisticated relationship. Sometimes there's been antagonism. Largely, there's been congruence or interaction. Sometimes they just kind of do their own separate things side by side. And so some of that idea that science and religion are separate actually flows out of this flawed model of how they interact that the literature shows is not a academically credible way of looking at it. There's another part that there are people, Christians, who want to make science look foolish because they perceive it as a threat to Christianity. And there are scientists who want to make religion and particularly Christianity look foolish because they perceive it as a threat to science. And so there's good publicity to be made by playing on that conflict. I mean, you get people talking about there's a battle and there's a war and you can get lots of support for that. The reality of it is when you look at the history, science and Christianity have coexisted very well for centuries. You can make a strong case that science actually, the enterprise of science that we enjoy today arose out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. You mentioned Judeo-Christianity there. And obviously within those religions, God is the central figure. But there are people who aren't comfortable with the concept of God, but they are open to the idea of intelligent design, however you want to label that creator. And one aspect of your work that I've read that's quite interesting is this concept of fine-tuning, which you believe you can see evidence of in the universe. Can you explain that to me? What the nature of fine-tuning is, is the idea that given the range of what could be, if this is going to do something or if it's going to work or it's going to function, it needs to assume a narrow range of parameters. You see examples of this all along. You go out and look at your car. I mean, the car is made of all of the natural elements of the earth. There's nothing fundamentally weird about what the car is made of. 
but you will find that if your pistons are not very precisely ground, if they have a surface roughness that is too large, they're not going to work. So you see fine tuning in the roughness of the surface or the length of the pistons or where they're located or the timing. I mean, there's all sorts of ways where you say it's got to be this way or else what it's going to do is not going to work. Well, when we look at the universe, we see a lot of parallels to that, actually parallels, and I would argue even uh, analogies to that, where if the laws of physics were different than what we observe, then carbon wouldn't exist. Well, if carbon doesn't exist, you're not going to get life because there's no other element in the periodic table which hosts the complex biochemistry that life requires. Or you need to have the right size planet orbiting around the right size star. And we could calculate how tightly constrained that is and ask that question against the number of stars that we can see in the galaxy or in the universe. So that's kind of where the fine tuning shows up. And we see it across disciplines. I mean, even looking at the DNA that is the fabric of life, we see incredible amounts of fine tuning there so that that code, that genetic code there just works reliably in a very messy environment, but yet it works correctly almost all the time. As I think about this from an apologetic or you know, philosophical perspective, fine tuning is a way of identifying purpose. And so really that's kind of what we're saying is that the universe looks like it's fine-tuned for life to be here, that would indicate that the universe has a purpose for life to be here. But really, that fine-tuning argument is just one way of articulating that our universe has a purpose. Now, building on discussion of the universe, there's this theoretical idea of such a thing as a multiverse that even you know Stephen Hawking said he thought it was possible there could be in some shape or form a limited multiverse and again this is a topic where some people have said if there was a multiverse that is an immediate problem for judeo-christianity but you're of the opinion that a multiverse would actually fit in perfectly well from a religious perspective yeah, that's exactly the way I would look at it. And we can discuss what is the scientific evidence or why do scientists think there might be a multiverse? And that's a very fascinating topic. But when I began investigating the multiverse and realized, oh, there's scientific reasons why that's a reasonable idea. It's not like it's shown or that's the way it is, but it's a reasonable idea. I immediately started thinking, okay, so as a Christian, what would happen if the multiverse exists? Would that be a problem for me? And as I go look at scripture, what I find is that the Bible actually describes a creation that looks a lot like a multiverse. There's this heaven and this earth. We also know that described in Revelation and other places that when this universe has served its purpose, he's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, where the laws of physics are different. One thing that tells us that is that you look at some of the structures and there are these structures that are thousand miles cubic on a side. In this universe, that's just impossible because gravity will pull anything of that size into a ball. So we see that the Bible describes a multiverse in this heaven and earth and the new heavens and new earth is a another verse, if you will. And there's even beyond that, there's the spiritual realm where there's the angelic being. So the Bible describes multiple created realms. The idea of a multiverse isn't in any way anti-biblical. Now, the question is, you know, are there ways to make a multiverse that are anti-biblical? Of course, but the very idea of a multiverse is not unscriptural by any stretch. 
and then beyond the possibility of a multiverse existing. What exactly is a multiverse? I mean, my perception from media and television is essentially if I cross the road and get hit by a car and killed in some other universe, I don't cross the road and don't get killed. And so every time we take an action or make a decision, somehow there's a different universe where we do other. Is that correct? That's more or less the idea, but I think it's important to recognize that there are some assumptions smuggled into that idea. The general idea behind a multiverse is that our universe, and you have to figure out how to define a universe, but you can make an argument that our observable universe is about 50 billion light years in radius, so maybe 100 billion light years in diameter. Anything beyond that is the multiverse, and there are different ways you can get a multiverse and what it looks like. But the general idea, regardless of what kind of multiverse you're talking about, is that, yes, everything has some probability of happening. And so if you have a large enough sample size, and, and whenever you're dealing with probabilities and, and outcomes, you got to ask, what's the probability and what's the sample size? And so if the sample size is large enough, then you expect all the different possibilities to happen. So, for example, how that plays out related to this kind of fine tuning. We could go out and we could deal a hand of poker. And the highest hand in poker is ace, king, queen, jack, 10 of spades. Now, if I deal one hand and that hand comes up, that has a chance of one part in two and a half million. So if I deal that and you and I are the only people playing and I deal that, you say, wow, that's rare and unusual. Now, if I tell you there are a billion people doing this exact same thing, that one thing that became rare and improbable, now you expect to happen because it's gonna happen in that large sample size. That's essentially what's going on with the multiverse is yes, there are all these rare, improbable, designed, fine-tuned things, but given a large enough sample size, all of it's gonna happen somewhere. And the reason why we shouldn't be surprised about it is the only place we could be is where it all happened. Because if it didn't happen, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. Now, there is a naturalistic assumption smuggled in in the way that's talked about oftentimes. It says, well, maybe there's a multiverse where you and I are having this conversation and I'm an atheist. There's a, a, an assumption smuggled in there that if you just rearrange all the atoms, you're going to get other beings, other people. And from a Christian perspective, that is very different because I am not just an arrangement of atoms. I am the physical in union with spiritual. So even if you were to get all the atoms rearranged, that doesn't mean Jeff's wearing's there. So the idea of me having multiple instantations across the multiverse is a naturalistic assumption that as I, a Christian, I don't buy. You can rearrange all the matter all you want. You're not going to get another Jeff's wearing somewhere unless God infuses that with a spirit like he did here. I know we're getting deep into the realm of theory here, but if there are multiverses, would it theoretically be possible for us to have interactions with people or things from one of those multiverses? The way the multiverse is envisioned most of the time, the interaction between our verse and one of those other verses is impossible. It's too far away. It's not spatially connected. There's any number of reasons. It's just there's no way to ever have any sort of communication through it. Now, there is this odd idea that perhaps there's a way that space could get warped and deformed and our universe could be connected to some of those things. Kind of a bizarre idea. 
So I can't rule out and say, no, it's absolutely impossible. But the way most people conceive of the multiverse, how they exist, how they're formed, how they're generated and how they develop, there is no interaction between any of these multiverses, except for possibly right when they're formed, they might be colliding before they move apart. There are some odd places where they might have some physical signature in between each other, but in general, no, they just never communicate with each other. Now, going back to Stephen Hawking, before he died, he said he was open to the idea of life on other planets, and he was open to the idea of a multiverse, but he was not open to the idea of God. And it strikes me that if you've ever seen that show, Ancient Aliens, you have these guys on there. One of the stories they look at is Ezekiel's story from the Bible, where they feel that what he saw is something that looked a lot like, in modern vernacular, a flying saucer. Obviously, Ezekiel didn't see it as such, but physically it seems to resemble that. And if you think in medieval times, if some Martians came down and landed on Earth, the likelihood is the people would have thought, oh goodness, this is something from the heavens, which technically it is. So when you have someone like Stephen Hawking, who's dead opposed to this idea of God, is it just semantics? Because other people might say, well, you're talking about things that are otherworldly, that could be more advanced than us, that could be from a different realm, i.e. multiverse. And essentially that's the same kind of thing that we think is possible, except we call it religion, you don't and so maybe he was so dead set against the idea of religion that he used wittingly or otherwise you know semantics to come up with something that essentially was similar kind of thing from some people's perspective whilst maintaining this position that he had you know that's an interesting point and to the extent i'm studying hawking and what he developed i will say this nothing about the science that hawking found pointed him and said, oh, God doesn't exist. His endeavors to develop models where God doesn't exist, that was by something outside of the science that was driving his thoughts there. Some of the work that he did provided, at the time, some of the more compelling evidence that our universe had a beginning and needed a beginner. And so, uh, like I said, there's nothing about Hawking's work where he's studying the science and it's like, oh, given what I found, God can't exist. That was something he brought in and tried to see, hey, could I, could I find science that supports this idea? Your question there is interesting about what might there be out there because as far as Christianity has gone, one of the things that surprised me as I started asking the question, you know, same way, what if a multiverse exists as a Christian? What would happen if aliens came and landed here? What would I do? I have found out in doing my research that Christians have been thinking about life beyond Earth for far longer than science could ever weigh in on the topic. In fact, two very early scientists, Galileo and Kepler, both of who are devout Christians, studying creation to figure out who God is and how to know the universe he's revealed. Galileo thought God only created life here on Earth. Kepler thought God had created life on all the different bodies that were out there. So here you've got two devout Christians taking two different positions on that. The idea of aliens isn't something where science has come along and said, hey, we might be able to find life out there and this would defeat Christianity. Christians have thought about this for centuries, if not millennia. Nothing about alien life would reveal that Christianity is flawed. If Christianity is true, we expect 
other beings to exist. There's the angelic realm, regardless of whether any other physical life exists. And we know through reading places in scripture that at times the angelic realm interacts with us physically and visually and in tangible sensory ways. If Christianity is true, if there are alien beings that somehow came and settled here on earth or came to earth and visited, I would expect them to know something about the God who created the universe. And it would be a very similar story to what's been revealed to us. Or I might actually entertain the idea that they are beings who are out to confuse and who are going to lie about it as well. But again, I would expect something very similar to what we see here on earth because God is a God of consistency. Now, there are certain things God has revealed that this is the way it works, but I don't find anything looking through scripture that God might not have created other beings that never fell. Or maybe he created beings that fell but aren't redeemable. Or maybe he has another means of redemption. I, again, this is the sort of stuff that Christians have thought about for a long time. So to say, oh, there can't be aliens, that's not what Christian scholarship has said is permissible. Do you think then that it's fair to say that atheism is as much a belief system as, say, Christianity or Islam or any other religion is? What I know is true is that whether you're a Christian or an, an atheist, you have a belief about how the world works. You have a view of how the world works. That's true for both groups of people. It's not like Christians are saying, oh, we're just believing and over here we're doing something else. No, we both have a set of beliefs about how the world works. The question in my mind is how well do those beliefs explain the world in which we see? How do you buttress the worldview that science requires? Because it seems like a lot of the things that science requires, the philosophical presuppositions or preconditions are not anchored in a naturalistic or atheistic worldview, but they're well anchored in a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so when I'm talking about having a coherent worldview, it's not just, can I explain why do why does lightning happen? Why is the universe expanding? How do planets form? It's not just explaining that, but it's also, you have to explain why the tools we're using are worth believing. And I think science has great value. I think part of why it has great value is that it flows out of a Judeo-Christian worldview that God has created this world. It's objective, rational, worthy of study, and the things that, the thoughts that go in our mind, we can trust them to be an accurate representation of what's going on. That's why I think science works. I'm not sure what a naturalist would say about why science works, except that it does work very well. Now, when we talk about religion, I'm Catholic, you're a Christian, but there are lots of other religions out there. So, scientifically speaking, is there anything that suggests that, you know, the Judeo-Christian belief, talking broadly about it, is accurate, scientifically speaking, versus Hinduism or Buddhism or any other strand of religion in the world? That's a really good question. And I think to really get an, an answer that well, really you have to move beyond science, if you will, to ask the question, how do you test worldviews? You know, one of the things that's often true of scientists is they're good scientists and tend to be poor philosophers. Uh, because there's just so much you have to learn to be able to do science well, you don't get the time to study the philosophy behind it. 
But philosophers have thought about, hey, there's different worldviews and there's ways to test which ones work better. And it's not the throw it in a lab and do experiments on it, but you can do, is it coherent? Is it cohesive? Does it have explanatory power? Does it have explanatory scope? You know, there are tests you can apply to worldviews and see if they work or not. And if the ones that work are able to account for why the world works the way it does and also the things that we hold dear. I mean, if, if you think humans are valuable, your worldview has to explain why humans are valuable. If you think that animals are valuable, you have to explain why in your worldview that says that animals are valuable. If you think science works, why should we trust science? So in one sense, that's a worldview test. And I, you know, I have a colleague, Ken Samples, who's written a book called uh, A World of Difference, where he looks at how do you test various worldviews. And it, again, it's not quite the scientific, you know, put them in a in a lab and test them, but there are very robust tests of how worldview works. And you can ab abductively say, this worldview works better than this worldview. But I also think there's another way to look at that. And my boss, Hugh Ross, this was part of his testimony, is you can say, let's just go read the religious texts that explain the worldview of Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism and Christianity and Islam. Let's go read what they say about the world and ask the question, which one of these texts, the way it describes the world, aligns with what we know scientifically? I have not extensively done that, but I do know that when you go look at Christianity, Christianity talks about a world that begins to exist, that God upholds this world. If he were to withdraw his hands, it would tumble into non-existence, and he does so so reliably that we can talk about things like the laws of physics, if you will that this universe is dynamic and expanding, that God's stretching out the heaven. There's obviously theological questions on how do you interpret the scripture and scientific questions of what's actually out there. But in all of these big places where scripture talks about this is the way the world works, the science lines up with that. One that I find particularly interesting, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so there's actually quite a bit of evidence for a beginning to the universe. But then it switches to the surface of the earth, and the earth was formless and void, darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So it's dark, no structure, no form, and covered in water. Well, we know from the way planets form that that's exactly what the early earth would have looked like. So here we've got this description in scripture long before science could weigh in, and yet it lines up with what we find. I find that consistently throughout Scripture, that the way it describes how humans work, how the world works, how the world's formed, where astronomy and physics can weigh in, it seems to line up and affirm what Scripture said for millennia. One thing that I think is a very powerful point in favor of Christianity is that you look at a lot of the ancient world, and particularly if you look at what Moses or the author of Genesis and Exodus, you know, is they're writing down and they're describing, if you think how the world he was speaking to thought, how the author of those books thought, and how we think. So we're 3,000 years removed from that, that we think more like Moses than the original audience thought like Moses. That so transformative was that Genesis account that we think more like Moses than his original audience did. That's pretty powerful in my assessment. Now, focusing on Christianity, there is somewhat of a divide between Christian groups in terms of what you might call literalists and other people who are more interpretive. So there are things in the Bible that some would say, yes, this is exactly what happened. This is a historical account. There are other people who say, well, you know, this was more symbolic. This wasn't exactly as it happened. 
And the critics could say, well, this is a slippery slope because if you start picking and choosing what's historical versus what's symbolic or what have you, then the whole thing can kind of unravel pretty quickly. But where do you fall in terms of the Bible as being fact versus, you know, symbolism or anything else? I take the position that what scripture says is true throughout scripture, but important to understanding that is understanding the genre and what's being said there. And so it's very easy to read scripture today through 21st century eyes as opposed to the original audience it was being written to. I, I take Genesis 1 to be an accurate historical account of what's being described. Now, a lot of people will say, okay, well, if you're taking it literally, that means those have to be 24-hour days. But that misses the scholarship that Christianity has done on Genesis. It's not either literal 24-hour days or figurative something else. You look at the scholarship of people who hold Scripture in high regard, and you've got there are some who say, yeah, those are 24-hour days. Others who will say those are meant to be longer periods of time. Others who will say those aren't meant to communicate time at all. There's a theological meaning behind the creation week, but it's not about timekeeping. You know, another way is looking at it, say that creation week is an analogy to our, our work week. So there's ways where it's like and ways where it's not like. None of those positions take Genesis 1 as symbolic or metaphorical or not historical. Maybe the one where it's, not, it's a theological account, not a historical account, that would. But... Just sticking within Orthodox Christian thought there, I can find different ways of taking the Genesis 1 creation account as being actual history, but some were going to disagree on the time scale and what actually happened. I think this whole distinction between you're either literal 24-hour days or you're figurative, it bugs me that there are people in the church that say that because it just doesn't accurately reflect the scholarship that Christians have done on this. So I do take Genesis 1 as a historical account of what's going on. I think it doesn't give us much date on the time scales, but it does give us information on the chronology of what happened before and when, and what are the nature of some of those miracles, and what God might have been doing. I don't see that I'm forced to choose between a metaphorical or symbolic account and a literal account. Now, changing tack, getting back to science, as a kid, even growing up in Catholic school, we were taught, you know, the Big Bang Theory is how the universe started. I've seen some research recently with some scientists saying it doesn't quite add up, there must have been something there beforehand. And again, critics of religion and Christianity and Judaism and Islam will point to the Big Bang Theory and say, hey, this is what happened. It doesn't match what happened in the Bible, therefore it disproves Judeo-Christian religions, Islam can't be true. What are your thoughts on the Big Bang Theory, both scientifically and theologically? As I've studied the Big Bang Theory, I find it to be a potent indicator that the Bible had gotten the description of this universe correct, because the universe is governed by constant laws of physics. In fact, that's what motivated Einstein to develop his, the philosophical idea that led to him developing his theories of relativity was that the laws of physics are the same everywhere at all time, regardless of how you're moving. Everything we find about our universe aligns with that idea that the laws of physics are constant. 
you find in you know, Big Bang cosmology, we, we measure that the universe is expanding. It's not that stuff is moving through space, it's that the very fabric of space is expanding. That there's this dynamic nature to our universe and that you have a beginning of some sort. Now, that's where that quantum gravity stuff is. The question is getting in there. It's like everything we see points to there being this really hot, dense state. And the question is, is that a beginning or is there something that precedes that? And even if there is something, does that have a beginning? But in there, you've got this incredibly hot, dense state that everything's expanding, cooling down under constant laws of physics. Well, when you read through scripture, that aligns very well with what scripture describes, that there's in the beginning, God created. Universe is governed by constant laws of physics because it's ultimately held together by an immutable God. And there's this idea of the heavens being stretched out. And so all of that fits very comfortably within a, the description given in scripture. Now, in all of that discussion, there is this question of, okay, general relativity describes the dynamics of the universe back to incredibly early times in the universe. But at some point, it's got to break down because it's not a quantum theory. And we expect quantum to be the more fundamental. And so there's this discussion of, well, maybe this quantum gravity where we thought there was a beginning, it turns out there's not going to be a beginning. Yeah, th that's where those ideas come in. The challenging part is that as it stands right now, we have no way of testing any of those quantum gravity models. And so to say that there's a beginning or not, we don't have the quantum gravity theory that we need to say it for sure. And we won't have any way to test it probably for a couple of decades, if not longer. And so we're left to make an assertion about that. But what I can say is that there's a lot of evidence that points to our universe having a beginning. And scientists have tried really hard to develop models where there isn't a beginning, only to find that further scientific studies said, now nah, we still need a model with a beginning. I think Big Bang cosmology is a great piece of evidence in support of the truth of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested to see how this will play out. But given the history, I expect that as we probe into that era of quantum gravity, we're going to find the conclusion that there's a beginning is actually going to grow even stronger. Now, going back again to my days in high school in physics class, where I was and probably still am the worst physics student they ever had. One of the things that really fascinated me were black holes. Now, I understand the basics of it with the gravity sucking in light and so forth. But from a religious, scientific viewpoint, how would you explain the purpose of a black hole? Um, I would say the function of black holes is that they're just a necessary consequence of a universe that has matter and is governed by general relativity. If general relativity is not true, there's no reason black holes need to exist. But if general relativity is correct, you get enough mass concentrated into a small or into a volume, and it's going to create, it's going to form a black hole. So. I don't know that they have a purpose and that, oh, without this many black holes, there's not going to be, I don't know whether there's any sort of necessity of black holes in that fashion. But it is true that if general relativity governs the dynamics of the universe and to every place we measure that in a large scale, it works, then you're going to end up with black holes. And there's part of me that I just find these really cool and fascinating. One thing I think you could argue they, they do serve a function is that they're incredibly powerful incredibly massive and just utterly bizarre. So foreign to our way of thinking. To me, I find that a parallel or a reflection of God. You know, God is incredibly powerful, massive beyond measure. I mean, you know, those are all limited quantities of God's immeasurable quantities. 
and just utterly beyond my ability to think and comprehend outside of writing down some equations, if you will. I would expect to find things like that in a creation made by a god who has those characteristics, if you will. Now I'm going to reference Hawking again since I keep bringing up his name, but he said he was open to the possibility of time travel in some shape or form. As a scientist and as a Christian, does that open up some kind of moral quandaries? For example, would it be ethical for me to travel back in time and beat up Judas or kill Adolf Hitler? Is time travel, assuming it's possible, as simple as that? And if it is, are there moral issues we'd have to face with regard to it? As I have thought about that, there, there's part of that idea of, oh, can we take ourselves from one time and put ourselves in another time? And there's this presumption that if you can do that, I can take what's going on in my time and go back and affect what's prior to my time. And I think that's probably a wrong way to look at it. And, and I've read a book, obviously fiction books, because we can't time travel. Premonition was the first of the trilogy. And then, but I, you know, I think even the Marvel Universe dealt with this. And I think I can put a spoiler in here, because if you haven't seen the Marvel movies, they've been out long enough, it's on you at this point. You know, in their description, it wasn't like they were going back and changing the past. So their time didn't cease and start again. Their time now kind of gets warped back there. So their time is still moving forward. Whatever's gone on back here isn't going to change their past. It's going to change their future. And so there's kind of an assumption smuggled in there that I can go back and change my past. And we have no reason to think that's true. So I can travel to my left or to my right. I can do either one of those. But time has this weird scenario where I can only move forward in time and everybody can only move forward in time. Now it is true that you can affect how quickly you move forward in time, but I can only move forward in time. I can never travel backward in time. And so the question is, is it possible that we might develop a way where I could travel through time to where I could go to a time on a timeline prior to mine? But that doesn't mean that I'm now affecting my past. It just means that I'm now at a different place in time. So everything that's happened will still have happened, but I'm just now at a different place in time. Philosophically, I could figure out how that could make sense and be coherent. I don't think it's possible. Or if it, for it to be possible, we have got to figure out how to warp space in a way that is incredibly difficult because we know the amount of energy that it takes is so beyond our ability to manipulate. I'm pretty confident saying we're not going to be able to time travel. It's certainly not going to happen in my lifetime if it's even possible at all. I'm, I'm inclined to say it's not even possible. We've talked a lot about scientific hypotheticals in this episode, but when you think back through time, obviously there were things that were seen as being fact that over time we've learned were actually incorrect. For example, Copernicus came along and said, hey, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, and a lot of people in Western Europe thought, oh my goodness, this is heretical and controversial. Now we understand that is the case. With where we are at today, do you feel like we are approaching kind of a plateau where we not know everything, but we are, you know, pretty close to figuring out most things? Or do you think that we are still somehow in our kind of scientific infancy and there's far more that we don't understand than we do understand? I would argue that there are ways where we're beginning to get a feel for 
how much more there is to know, at least in certain areas. I'm actually of the opinion that in the same way we can study scripture, God's revelation in scripture, and never exhaust what there is to know, that in the same way God's revealed himself in scripture, he's revealed himself in creation, so we will never exhaust what there is to know, that there's always going to be new things. But in the same way, as we look at scripture, there are certain things that we know you know, there are big parameters. It's like, these are the things that are true. I mean, you know, there's aspects of who Jesus is and who God is. The triune God, the second person of the Godhead takes on a human nature, comes and dies on the cross to redeem. You know, there's things that we just know. And we've got most of the big pieces in place there. From a studying the universe, we might be getting a lot of the big pieces in place. And that as we're studying quantum mechanics and looking how gravity works and how the strong and weak nuclear force and electromagnetism and we're approaching getting this theory of everything that says okay we can give a broad brush explanation of all of this i think we're getting close to that you know how that plays out with quantum mechanics there could be some new things show up there that wouldn't at all surprise me because that's happened in the past i mean we didn't know about dark energy you know sort of knew about dark matter 80 years ago but we're really no closer to getting that resolved in terms of actual data and so I expect as we go along, we're, we may kind of wrap up the grandest picture, but working out the details of how that grand picture gets all the way down to the, what we see in the day to day, there's going to be so much depth, detail, intricacy, fascinating stuff in there that we will never exhaust that. So we've discussed an awful lot of stuff today, but within the parameters of a podcast episode, there's only so much time we can go over these things. So for anyone listening today whose interest has been piqued, either with you and your work or with reasons to believe the organization you work for, what kind of resources are there out there that you could direct them to so they could learn more about these kind of topics? I wrote a book on the multiverse, alien life. You know, is there a beginning to the universe? I think going and looking at those would be... If those topics interest you, I think those are pretty well written and you'll enjoy those. You can always go to reasons.org. There's many blog posts, multimedia video stuff, podcasts that you can listen to. A lot of things, astrophysics, theological, biological, lots of different topics there. If you want to connect with me on social media, RTB underscore official to go to RTB, RTB underscore Jay's wearing. Connect with me and we can dialogue there. So there's lots of different options for connecting with the organization I work with and uh, me in particular.